Well, good morning again. I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. If you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. We are glad that you're here. We're in a series uh, spending a few weeks in the book of 2 Corinthians, the first several chapters, 2 Corinthians. And this morning we're going to be in chapter 4, looking at verses 7 through 18. As we're looking at 2 Corinthians, we're doing that because one of Paul's uh, themes that he is talking about in this book is the sufficiency of God. So we've been talking about what it means for us as individuals in a church family to trust in the sufficiency of God, to trust the sufficiency of God for all that we need. So we come this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let me pray for us and we'll jump right in. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning to your word and uh, we come having been told and reminded that you are sufficient, but we need to see that. We need to see it laid out for us in Scripture, and we need to see it laid out for us as you drive that truth home to us in our own lives. So we pray that you would do that. This is your word. Would you use it uh, to break the places of our hearts that are hard? Would you use it uh, to stir up desolate ground that it might become fruitful again or for the first time? We pray that you would open deaf ears and open blind eyes that we might see and hear. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. <clears throat> but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, Persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Take a look for a minute at the list of adjectives and phrases that Paul uses to describe what his life at this moment feels like. Look with me at verses uh, 8 through 10. Look at the kinds of things that he says. We are afflicted in every way, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, carrying in ourselves the very uh, essence of death. If you were in Paul's situation, and you might feel like you're in a situation that feels like that now or have been, what would you have concluded? 
What would you have concluded about God based on your circumstances? Uh, Maybe that God had abandoned you. Or uh, maybe that he was somehow punishing you. Or that he didn't even exist. Or if he did, that he couldn't be trusted. You hear the ways Paul is talking about the struggle of his life. And where that struggle can easily lead us. But notice that for Paul, it doesn't. Because he pairs each of these descriptions with a deeper reality. Listen to what he says again. He says that we are crushed, excuse me, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed. That we are perplexed but not driven to despair. That we are persecuted but not forsaken. We are struck down but not destroyed. You see what Paul is saying. He says that in, in spite of the hardness of his situation, that there he is in touch with some sort of deeper reality that says that this will not have the final word. That though you are persecuted, you will not be crushed. You will not be destroyed. He was holding on to something. What we see Paul doing here, and we see him doing it in lots of places in Scripture, but here he does it in particular with his sufferings as he follows Jesus. We see that Paul's circumstances were not the basis for his theology, for what he believed to be true about God. Rather, Paul's theology was the foundation for how he was, would then understand his circumstances. Okay, does that difference make sense? When, when he got to God, he didn't do it this way. Let me look at my circumstances. Let me look at what God is and is not giving me in life right now. And that is going to inform me about who God is and what he thinks about me and how my life is going to go. Instead, he knew and believed certain things about God first. And knowing those, it gave him a new set of eyes to look at his circumstances and understand them for what they were. Paul looked at the hardness of what was going on. And because of what he knew about God... He knew that God was there, and he was going to see him through. Okay, so Paul's theology in the midst of this suffering rooted him, gave him a place to stand, gave him a place to stand on Christ himself. So we're going to see three things about Paul's theology here. Paul knew what he loved, and he knew what we are, and he knew what we have. Those three things. He knew what he loved, he knew what we are, and he knew what we have. So first, he knew what we loved. Look again with me in verse 7 at the start of our passage. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Paul knew what he loved. He begins right here speaking of his treasure. His treasure. The thing that he valued, the thing that he held high as most valuable to him. And and what was it? Go back one verse to the preceding passage. Verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul is saying in one of his typically convoluted sentences. God has broken into my life and he has pushed back the darkness and he has turned the lights on so that I could see the very glory of God in the face of Jesus, the one who came to rescue me. The one who came to save me. The one for Paul that he now proclaimed to the world as he traveled from city to city. Speaking of the gospel, telling people about Jesus, planting churches, raising up new believers. Paul was engaged in this work and he said, this is my treasure, what Christ has done for us. He said, that is what I value. 
That is what I put my stock in. That is what I have rooted my very life in. Paul knew what he loved. He knew what he treasured. It was Jesus himself. It was the good news of what Christ has done for us. For Paul, it was not simply knowing a list of good doctrinal statements about what Christ had done and who he was. For Paul, it was an intimate experience of who God was, of what Christ had done for him. That what Christ had promised had come to bear its fruit in his own life. It had become a treasure for him. Treasures are the things that we most value, that we most guard, that we most protect, that we most put our hope in. And so let me ask you this question. And, and the question comes, as always, to, to me as well this morning. What, what, what is your treasure? And, and maybe to put a, a sharper point on it. Is Christ for us? Is he our currency or is he our treasure? Is he our currency or is, our, is he our treasure? In, in other words, is, is he the thing that we treasure and value most? Or is he some, cor- some sort of spiritual currency for us by which we obtain other things? Jesus is the one that I pray to so that uh, the problems in my life will go away. Jesus is the one I pray to so that he will sell my house. Jesus is the, the one who, uh, you know, who, who comes to make life smooth for us. Now, now, Jesus does a lot, even here and now in our lives. He does watch over us. He does care for us. He does call us to bring every request and need to him because he cares. But you see, all of that, the blessings of Christ are bound up in Christ himself, who is the treasure. And for Paul, he said he looked around at the circumstances of his life when things were not going well, when ministry did not seem fruitful, when it seemed like he was on the very verge of being crushed. And he said, what is true about God? He is my treasure. All these things might be stripped away from me, but I have Jesus. And so I can give thanks. I can still praise his name because he is good and that has not been taken away from me. You see, for Paul, Christ was his treasure, not his currency. He was not using Jesus in his life to gain fame. He's an international preacher and planter of churches. He was not using Jesus to make himself rich. He was not using Jesus to gain the admiration of men. He said, Jesus himself is my treasure. He's not a means to another end. He is the end itself. He is the thing that I love most. He is the thing that I spend my free time thinking about. He is the one to whom I run in prayer and to whom I run in Scripture. He is the one when everything else is falling apart that I hold on to because He has me. He is the one that when everything is going right, I turn to and give thanks because He has me. He is my treasure, is what Paul said. And is he our treasure as well? Because you see, when you have what you treasure most, then it lends a certain perspective to all the hardship and trial. I can survive this because I have this. Think about it, many of you may have experienced this, let's say in early days of your marriage, when you uh, tell stories about how those first few years, like you had no money, but you were married to the person you loved, and so it just didn't matter. 
You know, my parents, had t- I, st- I still own the, uh, the little glass jar that they had where they would go put extra change in it so that at the end of the month they could go get an ice cream cone together because they didn't have much, but they had each other, and it was worth it. See, Paul says that all these other things can be stripped away, but the thing that I value most, my treasure is in Christ, and nothing can take that away from me. See, Paul, in the midst of these circumstances, was rooted first in his theology. And the first point of that is that Paul knew what he loved, what he treasured. But the second thing is that Paul also knew what we are. And find it here in verse 7 that we are jars of clay. Now, l- long before this was a, a 90s Christian rock band, uh, this <laughs> has long been an image that has spoken to God's people. And in fact, for Paul, when he says this, it would have been a common image in the literature of his time as well. This idea of us and our frailty and fragileness being compared to a jar of clay. Why a jar of clay? Because they didn't have Tupperware, which is where we put our stuff. Jars of clay were, you know, the things they would have put in a household, you would have put, you would have stored things in. And uh, unlike our Tupperware that bounces when you drop it on the floor, when you drop a jar of clay on the floor, it breaks. And you see, that's Paul's point. The jars of clay are fragile. They're breakable. They're common. They're not really anything special. And for Paul, when he grabs hold of this image, he's speaking, remember first, as we've said in the last few weeks, to a group of critics that were saying, Paul can't possibly be a real apostle. You know, people that come into the Corinthian church and were saying, look, you, you don't owe any allegiance to him. Whatever he's preaching about Christ can't be true. Look, he's been thrown in jail. Look, he's been beaten. Look at all the things that on the surface look like such failure in his life. Do you think God would work through that? Then God's on the losing side? They looked at Paul and they said, look, he is fragile and breakable like a clay pot and Paul said exactly that God chooses to take his treasure, the goodness of the gospel, the reconciliation he brings us in Christ, and he brings it to people in jars of clay that are easily broken, jars of clay like Paul. Uh, if you're like me, you've, you've broken a lot of things in your life. Uh, things... Glasses and stuff break in our kitchen all the time. I, I would love, I'd love to be able to do what I occasionally do from the pulpit, which is to blame my children for everything. Uh, but the truth is I'm sort of the, the, the primary uh, breaker in our household. We were recently with some old friends, lifelong friends of ours, and the, uh, the wife was speaking to her nine-year-old son as she handed me a plastic glass full of water. And she said, uh, Uncle Brandon, I have honorary uncle status in their family. She said, Uncle Brandon, we, he used to break all our glasses, so now we give him plastic. And uh, I was, somebody stopped me after first service and said that he has the same trouble, and he's uh, considerably older than I am, so apparently I'm never going to get past this. Um, if in, in our kitchen at home, we have tile floors. You know what it's like when you drop something and it breaks with incredible drama all over the place. Paul is saying that that, that really is what our lives are like. They are breakable like that. In spite of all our desires to be um, impenetrable, to be unbreakable, that we really are these clay pots. But the truth is that that grates against us to some degree because we love to be strong, however you define strength. Um, The last number of weeks, we're sort of getting out of this phase now, but you couldn't open the paper or turn on, look at a news site on the web without hearing a story about the Navy SEALs, right? 
Uh, and so I read a few of those. Uh, because the Navy SEALs, in the midst of their incredible mission a few weeks ago, they are this picture of incredible strength. And I'm sure you read the stories about how grueling their training is and how precise they've learned to be as soldiers and all that it takes that, you know, they go through training and only a fraction of the people who start training actually finish. In fact, I read this morning that in Chesapeake, there's a, uh, a company run by former SEALs where you can go and spend SEAL week. <coughs> Excuse me. You can for a considerable amount of money, actually pay to be in the worst pain of your life uh, to see if you've got what it takes. Because they said there are two kinds of people in this interview. They said two kinds of people that come and go to whatever they call this sort of, you know, want to be a SEAL training. First, they tend to get young men who want to see if they have what it takes to be a SEAL. And then secondly, they also get middle-aged men who want to see if they've still got what it takes to be something, right? There's this because there's this desire this, this to be strong. Now, what's interesting about the SEALs is even as they went and performed their mission, remember that uh, picture that you may have seen a thousand times that I think is going to become an, you know, an, an iconic picture of this time period of the Situation Room while all this was going down, where President Obama and his advisors were looking at the screen. And if you can see that picture, you see a picture of people who were intensely watching to learn what was going to happen. Because you notice that when the president gave the order for that mission, he didn't then go to bed and say, I look forward to reading it in the paper in the morning, what, what, what happened, how this all went down. Because he knew, as good as the SEALs were, that things go wrong. And that even the best trained soldiers are fragile. And that things could have derailed. They were glued to the screen as they were watching because they knew at the end of the day that there are no guarantees for us. Paul put it on the table even more clearly that we are jars of clay. Paul's answer to our feelings of fragileness in life and that life is fragile is simply this, that they are fragile. God means for them to be. And this is the way that God has always worked from the start of the very Bible. Think about some of the stories that you know from the Old Testament. Think about, for example, uh, the story of David and Goliath, where David, this teenage shepherd boy, comes uh, to the battle lines of Israel and the Philistines, and he finds the Israelites cowering in fear because of this giant Goliath, this Philistine soldier who has them so terrified. <clears throat> David comes to the line and says, effectively, who, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? In other words, who is this rank pagan that would dare to stand up and defy the armies of the living God? David says, don't worry, I will go fight him. And everybody else around him is you know, just astounded. And Saul tries to give David his armor to at least give the kid a fighting chance. Uh, but it doesn't fit him, so he doesn't take it. David goes out and he picks up a few stones out of the river. And with his shepherd's sling, he uh, fells Goliath, who could have crushed him in a moment. Now, what is, what is the story of Goli David and Goliath about? Is it about uh, how incredibly strong and brave and capable King David was in the sight of Goliath? Not really. You see, shepherd boy with a rock is a picture of weakness. See, everybody else in the army knew that Goliath was deadly, as did David. But David knew something else, that his God was stronger than that. David knew that he was not going to go win a great victory, but that God was going to. See, the story of David and Goliath is about a weak boy and a strong God. 
uh, earlier in Scripture, in the book of Judges, one of the stories of deliverers that God sends to his people, again, when his people have been overrun by enemies, is the story of Gideon. God calls Gideon to deliver his people, and Gideon uh, gets ready to go to war, and 32,000 Israelite soldiers show up to help him defeat their enemy. God takes Gideon aside and he says, look, you can't go into this battle with all those people because if you do, you'll think that you saved yourselves. In other words, you'll become prideful. You'll think that your might is what has saved you. So God begins to pare down the army. He has Gideon stand up and say, all right, everybody who is scared, go home. And thousands of people say thank you. And they turn around and leave. God continues to pare down the army until finally, (coughs) moment of suspense, until finally, God looks at Gideon and he says, I'm paring this down to 300. And with these 300 men, Gideon goes against the army and he sees God deliver them. You see, God always uses the weak things of the world to showcase his power his strength, his deliverance. We see in the New Testament too, don't we? A Messiah not with a sword and a legion of angels, but a Messiah stripped and beaten and crucified on a cross. God shows his power through weakness. So Paul knew what he loved. He also knew what was true about us that we are these clay pots, these jars of clay. But he knew something else. He also knew what we have. We have, as these jars of clay, the very power of God himself. God's power on display in our lives. Look in verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. See, Paul, in the midst of his weakness and the seeming failure of so much in his life, he said, we have surpassing power. We have power that is greater than all the brokenness. We have power that is greater than all the failure. He said, we have power that is greater than the fragility of these jars of clay. And he said, the point is, that we would know that the power comes from God and not ourselves. Now, if you've ever been to a, a jeweler, um, men, if you've gone to, gone to buy a diamond because you wanted to propose and get married, or maybe some other situation, you go, and when the jeweler pulls out that diamond, remember what he does. He, he takes the diamond, he takes the stone, he, he takes the jeweler, the ring, and he puts it on a black piece of felt. Why does he do that? So that... There is nothing to distract your eye from the beauty of the gem, the jewel itself. So that nothing else catches your eye, so that nothing else catches the light. So you can see the magnificent, magnificence of the treasure in all its beauty. Paul has said that he has a treasure. And that treasure is Christ himself. And he says that the weaknesses of his life, the fragility of it, the clay jarness of his life is like that black felt and the same is true for us that our fragility and brokenness is like that black felt as well that is meant to highlight the beauty of the treasure 
And God says, there will be nothing that will take away from my magnificence, from my beauty. He says to us, I'm not going to give you any reason to think that this is about your accomplishment, about your goodness, about your power. He says, it is about mine. Paul knew that we have something. We, in our fragility, we have the very power of God. Paul speaks of this in, in verse 13. Uh, and, and when he does this, he's quoting Psalm 116, verse 10. And the psalmist in that psalm tells a story of, uh, of some great struggle in his life. Something that was tearing him apart, but God delivered him. And when God delivered him, he said, I must speak. I must speak of God's goodness. And that's what Paul quotes here in verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. He says, I have experienced and tasted this power of God who is my treasure and therefore I will speak. And that is the engine that drove Paul as an evangelist as he went and preached the gospel from city to city. And it's meant to be what drives the engine for us as well as followers of Jesus. As we give honor and glory to him, as we proclaim his name, not only when we are speaking of him in some sort of evangelistic situation maybe or over coffee with someone who doesn't know Christ, but in every aspect of our lives as we seek to live faithfully in all of the callings of life as parents, as children who are still in the homes with our parents, as students, as employees, as employers, as neighbors, all the context to which God has called us. He says we are to live with this reality that we are weak but Christ is strong and that his power is at work in us. See, he says this surpassing power belongs to God and it is at work in our lives even now. But secondly, this power of God is doing something in the future as well. Not just now, but it's doing something in the future as well. Verse 14. Excuse me, verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Do you hear what he's saying? This affliction is preparing for us. It's doing something. It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. And look at the way he now sees his struggle. This struggle that was so life-threatening to him, he says it is now slight compared to the weightiness of the glory of God to which he is being called. And he says this... Uh, struggle that he's having that feels like it's going to overwhelm his life. He says, in the light of eternity, it is momentary. It is a blink of the eye compared to the fact that God's blessing and glory will last forever. That he is rescuing us from these light and momentary trials and preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. He says that these afflictions that we go through, these struggles in which Christ's power is shown are doing something. They're not just sort of unfortunate extras that get thrown into our life. That in the middle of this broken world, God is putting our affliction and struggle to work, to do something, to make us into a certain kind of people who trust God. 
But even more than that, one day he says that he is using these somehow to prepare us for this eternal weight of glory. He's saying to himself and to the Corinthians and to us that there really is something weightier than the brokenness we experience now. There is something that lasts. There is something that is more solid. And Paul says here, he says, you know, we are, even now, he says, we are being renewed day by day. We are getting tastes of that even now. And one day we're going to have it in its fullness. Paul talks about what he loves. He knows what he loves. He knows what we are, that we are these jars of clay. And he knows that what, what we have, this power of God. You see, these are the parts of his theology what he knows and believes to be true that now informs how he sees every struggle of his life. And what does he experience? He experiences this surpassing power of God. Now go back to the kitchen moment where you're cleaning the dish and you drop it. Have you ever had that one in a hundred time when the glass or the dish falls and somehow, miraculously, it doesn't break. And you pick it up and you look around and you're like, I can't, I can't believe this is still in one piece. What is Paul saying? He's saying that Christ is in us and he has us. And that ultimately that surpassing power of God is going to hold on to us fragile jars of clay that we are. And it's going to bring us safely home where we can no longer be dropped where there is no more breaking, but that now, where we are now, he will meet us in our fragility, and he will use that to bring glory to himself, to draw us to himself, to make his name known, and one day to bring us into glory. Let's pray.